about doing a couple of things. Creativity. You know, I've got a couple of ideas, I think, about, you know, where ideas come from, how to have ideas, how to be creative, which I'll explain in a minute. Also going to talk a little bit uh, about something very topical, uh, which is uh, the, the spread of ideas and what, you know, uh, sort of scientifically we would call that memes. So we're going to talk a bit about memes. Now, by memes, I don't just mean internet memes. I mean memes as a unit of cultural transmission. So this is, uh, and you know, for advertising people, we've got to be interested in that um, because that's, you know, how brands uh, grow by being famous and known uh, by more people and by the uh, number of associations or little connections or little extra memes uh, that make up the brand. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about that. <clears throat> so uh, as Andrew said, uh, my history is uh, about 25 years uh, in the advertising business. I've worked in media agencies and digital agencies, creative agencies, even I've worked client side in marketing and also with broadcasters. Uh, so I've got the kind of full, you know, almost a full spectrum of, um, you know, places where you can apply uh, strategic uh, thinking. I was formerly a creative director as well, but I wasn't very good at that. Uh, so I became a, um, a planner instead. Um, so as I say, I've been at, been at loads of agencies uh, from from independence through to you know big network ones you know i think I've, I've almost got the full set of omnicom wpp publicis and ipg and um, it was only a couple of holding companies that i haven't uh, uh, been at so but uh but last year uh i kind of you know enough was enough so uh, i thought right i'm gonna sort of channel that into uh doing my own thing and so i formed uh, this uh, sort of consulting practice uh, called artsciencetechnology.com. Uh, I won't elaborate too much on that. If you're interested, you can look up the website. It tells you a bit about uh, what we get up to. Uh, but essentially, uh, what we what we do is we apply uh, evolutionary psychology to uh, business and communications problems, principally communications. Obviously, that's my background. We're looking into uh, things like workplace uh, psychology and things like that as well. So um, that sort of frames how I'm going to talk a little bit about comms and ideas uh, this evening. It's, it's through that lens. So by evolutionary psychology, it's really a, it's a sort of branch of psychology that looks at how uh, the human mind uh, has developed and evolved over deep time, um, you know, over at least the last sort of couple of million years. Um, and, you know, our point of view is if you understand fundamentally how minds work, um, then it's easier to design uh, interventions or communications uh, to go with the, you know, to go along with human nature rather than trying to bend human nature to do something it doesn't want to do. Um, this is my sort of slogan, really. Uh, in applying that in uh, in advertising, you know, so we don't deal with messages, we deal with ideas uh, and the effects of ideas. So the human mind is is designed to absorb uh, ideas, 
Um, we'll talk about that uh, shortly when we get into memes. Now, <clears throat> applied evolutionary psychology um, is uh, is a bit of a niche uh, area of uh, advertising, to uh, to say the least. Uh, I did. I wanted to share with you. Oh, sorry. Just as Andrew mentioned, these are these are my two books. So um, that's what they look like. Uh, so if you see them anywhere, uh, feel free to uh, to buy them. But um, the uh, yes, the applied evolutionary psychology uh, doesn't always uh, go down well. This is my favourite uh, customer testimonial. So this was uh, an insurance firm that I worked with last year, who uh, uh, were were not very sort of uh, pleased. Uh, with, with some of our findings uh, and so uh, sometimes you get uh, these kind of responses but it was so funny I thought I'd use that as a testimonial. Okay so <clears throat> just uh, getting into it um, just to sort of set the scene uh, there's something that's sort of fundamental to understanding 21st century communications and brands and images and, and, and how we relate to all those things is, is looking at the, uh, the sort of software and hardware that we use to, to process these things. Now, <clears throat> the, you know, the, the mind, human mind that we all have uh, is, uh, you know, an incredible uh, complex uh, set of uh, uh, functions. But what we have to understand is that makeup was of, of the mind was not designed by natural selection with this modern world uh, in, in mind. It, it was designed for an environment much different uh, from this. So up until, you know, probably uh, the, the last real meaningful bit of uh, evolution in the human mind probably probably happened about 10,000 years ago uh, when, with the, um, uh, when we became agricultural people. Uh, rather than hunter-gatherers. Most of the mechanisms in, in your mind are designed to solve uh, what are called uh, recurrent adaptive problems so, uh, uh, that were particularly relevant in, uh, in the Stone Age, for instance, uh, not the modern world. And so you probably, um, you know, when you hear people talking, um, enthusiasts of uh, behavioral economics, for instance, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, talk of, of irrationality, uh, biases and errors of thinking and, you know, that, that humans are, you know, we're fundamentally not very smart. Well, I would sort of disagree with that. Uh, humans are very smart and very well adapted and a lot of things that look like flaws and biases are actually features of the mind. The mind was designed to cope with an environment that was that was different. So it's the environment that's changed, not the minds. Uh, and so some of the things in the modern world that can trip us up, uh, it doesn't mean that there's a flaw in our thinking. It's just we haven't, uh, biological evolution runs very slowly. Uh, cultural evolution uh, can run very fast at times. Uh, and we're in a period now where our biology hasn't caught up uh, with cultural evolution, um, but I know uh, there's people with ideas, you know, how to sort of, uh, you know, solve that. If you're interested in sort of, uh, you know, the singularity and things like that, so maybe you know, within the next couple of decades, 
we're going to have some sort of that we can put in our brains, you know, that might uh, uh, solve that that mismatch. But we'll see see what happens. But anyway, but in the current environment, uh, that's an important thing uh, to understand. Uh, just very very quickly, um, I'm going to tell you. So this would normally take you about five years uh, of a psych degree uh, to figure this out. I'm going to try and do it in about 15 seconds uh, of how the mind works. Uh, basically, uh, analogy to think of uh, um, the mind and brain situation. So your brain's the hardware, so it's a bit like the iPhone. Uh, your mind is the software, which is the apps. Right? And so your mind is full of mental modules or discrete processes designed by natural selection to solve uh, particular uh, problems. Uh, but they're all individual little apps. Uh, sometimes they talk to each other, sometimes they don't. You know, so if you've ever heard someone the expression, uh, I'm in two minds about that, well, that's, there's nothing funny about that because that just, you know, you're describing two sets of mental processes that are in conflict. Um, and, you know, so most of the time, you know, as you're sort of going about, you know, all these processes are worrying around uh, competing a lot of the time for control uh, of the uh, of the organism. Um, so that's uh, you know if you think of the brain as hardware, uh, mind as software, and then uh, there's a sort of sequence of uh, you know how these processes all fire together. And um, quite often, uh, and this is common in many agencies I've been in, um, creative briefs will often start. Uh, or somewhere in the brief, there'll be a section that says, what do we want consumers to think, feel, and do? Um, now, there's nothing wrong um, with those descriptors, but they're in the wrong order uh, because, um, you know, the, the first uh, response to any sort of stimulus in the environment is an emotional response. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, laughing or crying, although those can be, but the way to think about emotions is like a superordinate system, uh, like a radar, right? So emotions are continually scanning uh, the environment and then presenting feelings uh, to the organism. Now those feelings activate the cognitive programs uh, that we talked about before. So for instance, you're walking on the street uh, down a dark street at night and you hear some rustling or movement, you know, in the, uh, somewhere in the distance. So the emotion of fear detects that and it activates cognitive programs such as self-protection, for instance, and then it suppresses others. So you might be walking down the street thinking about, oh, you know, I'm going to go to the chip shop or, uh, you know, shall I go to the pub? Immediately those thoughts are suppressed and all the... Uh, focus of the mind goes on to you know self-protection type activities so that causes behavior right so then you know perhaps you walk a bit quicker or you know you try to minimize sound or whatever and then thoughts come after that and then you're looking for what's my escape route you know what's that in the shadows is it a dog or a cat so that's kind of uh, that's the sort of sequence of, of how the mind processes information uh, so the brain being what I've called here a neurophysiological basis, so it's, you know, it's uh, 
combination of neurons and, and physical matter. Then they've got all that software doing the emotional scanning, uh, activating cognitive programs, uh, triggering behaviors, and then thinking that comes after that. So it's not think, feel, do, it's feel, do, think, right? In response to reoccurring adaptive problems. So obviously survival uh, being a recurring adaptive problem, very important to survive uh, in the ancestral environment, right? Now, just to finish this off, you might say, but what about what about self? You know, who is me? Who's the conscious me or the rational me that does the thinking? Uh, well, the, the answer to that is uh, that it's one mental module. Uh, and it's an important one because it's a little set of, uh, it's a little cognitive program that's responsible for reputation management. Uh, and so the thing that you think of as you, as yourself, um, you know, there are many selves, you know, it's whichever cognitive program happens to be in charge of the organism at the time. But the one you think of of yourself is the one that, that's involved with uh, reputation management. And that's the PR department. So it basically post rationalizes and makes sense of uh, activity that uh, the mind has already decided to do and then tells yourself a story about why, uh, why you did it. <clears throat> Um, my favorite uh, sort of uh, description of this, this is really, really the, the best one uh, to talk about the, the human mind. It's basically a tiger, uh, you know, that's going in one direction uh, on wheels. And then the tiger has a monkey on its back that's facing in the opposite direction, uh, telling a story about what's just happened. But the monkey thinks it's steering. Uh, so anyway, you can look that one up, uh, the monkey and the tiger, but it's, uh... so understanding about human behavior, right? This is really, really important for comms. And um, a, a lot of the time I, I talk with planners and agencies or whatever, and they have this, uh, this kind of, uh, idealized idea of human nature that we're all, uh, that we're all sort of caring, sharing, uh, people who want to put others before ourselves, and, uh, you know, the millennials want you know, purpose-driven brands that want to make the world a better place. This is all, that's all a sort of nice idea. Unfortunately, it doesn't fit with uh, with how human nature actually works. You know, we're, we're we almost exclusively, you know, most people put self-interest first. Uh, we have a short-term focus. Uh, we want to compete with and do better uh, than other people. When we're unsure what to do, we'll copy what other people around us seem to be doing, and we re react uh, to immediate sensory cues. Uh, so this is uh, this is you know, in a nutshell uh, how human behaviour works. So even if we want to design interventions, you know, to make people, you know, be more charitable or uh, you know do things for other people, um, it's still more likely to succeed if we can frame it around those fundamentals of human nature. Now, some people get upset when I show the slide, they don't like it because they don't like to think of themselves as being self-interested. Uh, and what I say is, well, it doesn't mean selfish, right? It just means, uh, you know, people can still do good uh, and still help other people, but uh, it's, uh, you know, I mean, this is classic sort of, uh, you know, direct marketing thinking, right? Which is, uh, it's, you know, 
uh, designing a proposition for a consumer, you know, what they want to know is what's in it for me. Um, and so anything that we're doing, you know, if we sort of bear that in mind. So, um, yeah, so that, you know, in the sense that's, that's human nature. So, you know, with my uh, consultant firm, this is, you know, we really, this is my, uh, my sort of toolkit, really, we just go and look at all kinds of problems that organizations are having and then we look at it through this lens you know so you know see how are, you know even if it's uh, to do with structuring teams or laying out an office or anything um, you got to understand that people's first interests for themselves um, they don't think the long game uh, and you know it's a competitive environment so it's a simple model that applies everywhere you like so um okay that was the kind of uh um, the sort of grim uh, reality uh, for you. I'm going to sort of lighten it up a li little bit now, but just sort of understanding that how the mind, how the mind works, how it processes information. Um, you know, the key thing is you get nothing from nothing, right? The, the, your mind is an information processing device. So without any stimulus, without any input, uh, you don't get any output. Right. Now, <clears throat> the mind was designed by natural selection, uh, as was you know everything in the sort of physical uh, universe. Right. So, <clears throat> creativity, uh, the you know the the law sort of natural selection should apply to uh, creativity as well. And as I said to you before, nothing comes from nothing. And I'm going to show a few examples. Uh, of things from pop culture. I'm going to show my age because this is all just stuff that I like, you know, but you can uh, you can probably transpose this into uh, whatever sort of, you know, music or uh, film or whatever, um, you know, that, that you're interested in and look for those combinations. Uh, first one I always like to talk about is uh, Elvis Presley. So, you know, Elvis came out in 1955-56 with this, uh, what seemed like completely new sound to the world by storm. Um, but really, uh, you know, there was nothing uh, original about uh, Elvis, but uh, all it was was a unique recombination of other elements. You know? So Elvis used to hang about uh, in, in sort of downtown Memphis when he was a kid in the sort of red light area, hanging out with all the pimps and all that kind of stuff. And that's where he got the snazzy clothes from, the pink jackets and everything that was pure downtown Memphis pimp wear. So he took that uh, and he combined music that he liked, gospel music that he would hear. Uh, he copied his vocal style from Dean Martin, who'd been one of the, the Rat Pack alongside Frank Sinatra. Uh, and then the music was a combination of sort of hillbilly uh, country music and then and rhythm and blues as personified by the likes of Little Richard. Uh, so it was that combination of sort of black rhythm and blues, white hillbilly music, pimp clothes and Dean Martin crooning. Uh, stick that all together and you know you had this very sort of unique sound of rock and roll. Um, but it was a combination or a recombination of other uh, elements. Yeah. Next one I always like to talk about is the Ramones. Uh, so in case you thought Ramones was just something you get on t-shirts, uh, it was actually a band. 
uh, and they sort of come out in about 1975, 76, uh, sort of really responsible for kicking off, you know, most of sort of the punk uh, thing in the in the 70s. But you know, the Ramones, they, you know, they didn't set out to, they didn't say right, we're going to you know try and be a punk rock band. What they tried to do was copy this a teeny bop band from the early 70s called the Bay City Rollers, uh, and they mixed that with an approximation of the Beach Boys surfing sound that they could play. And they were also big fans of all the girl groups from the 60s, like the Ronettes and uh, the, everything from the Phil Spector stable. So they jumbled all that together, slightly handicapped by the fact that they couldn't really play instruments very well. So it had to be a very rudimentary version of that. Uh, and then, you know, and what came out was a really unique sound. It only sounds like the Ramones, but it's been much copied uh, ever since. But they, but they, you know, they didn't set out to produce anything original. It was just the influences that they absorbed and tried to copy. Um, and because of the errors in copying, uh, it came out completely original. Same with the Sex Pistols. Um, you know, at the time, it seemed like this was something that sort of you know, came out of nowhere and totally unique. Uh, but really, you know, it was uh, they copied a lot of riffs from the Who and the Small Faces, sped them up a bit. Even Johnny Rotten copied his whole stage uh, persona from Ian Jury. Um, and yet, when you put it all together, uh, it was a unique sound that probably you know that changed uh, um, music uh, not forever, but for a little while in the 70s. Uh, more recently. Uh, this is uh, Africa Bambata. Uh, so he was a uh, you know DJ and block parties in the in the Bronx in the mid 80s. But they didn't have any. They didn't uh, have instruments, but they had sort of turntables. And he basically you know uh, really invented that New York hip hop sound by mixing together uh, beats from German and European white sort of techno pop like Craftwork uh, and Depeche Mode and then brought in the rapping sort of over the top, which was really lifted from uh, Jamaican uh, toasting, right? Which says the DJs in the, uh, in Jamaica would sort of do this kind of, you know, talking over the top of, of records rhythmically. Uh, and, uh, you know, that made its way to New York, done in a New York accent. So there you had this total recombination of disparate elements uh, that created a whole new genre. Um, you know, so just made up of bits and pieces. The other one, I think, uh, more recently, uh, is uh, Lady Gaga. You, know, you can just uh, you can just see everything that she's pieced together, which is bits of Madonna, bits of Bowie, uh, you know, bits of, of Annie Lennox, and then the influence of kind of you know uh, Janet Jackson and house music. Uh, you know, and you know, for a little while there, she had a completely uh, original sound. Yet it was all pieced together uh, from other things. So the lesson, you know, for creativity is to kind of forget about any myths of the lone creative genius sitting there, you know, conjuring up uh, ideas out of nowhere. Nothing comes from nothing. It's all about combination, recombination. You know, and, and putting things together from from disparate sources. Um, the other thing, <clears throat> this is why 
uh, people that successfully do that are so successful. So my first book recommendation of the night is this one, Hitmakers by Derek Thompson, uh, which is really a sort of forensic analysis of why some things are popular and some things aren't. Um, I'll give you a spoiler alert. He comes to the conclusion that nothing uh, is popular. Things are just, some things are less unpopular than others. You know, think of the best-selling, uh, best-selling uh, book, say, you know, say Malcolm Gladwell takes out a book and it sells a million copies in Australia. Uh, that would be an extraordinary result for him. You know, I mean, most books don't even sell close to that. Um, but what that really means is there's about 23 million people who didn't buy it. You know, so even though it's uh, even though it's popular. Uh, we say it's popular, it's really just slightly less unpopular. But the things that do tend to be hits uh, are these things with, with the special combination. So, um, so uh, uh, Derek Thompson, he understands this from, uh, you know, from human nature that, you know, people are, uh, you know, on the one hand, uh, interested in new things, uh, but also slightly afraid of anything that's too new. So the best, uh, the best hit makers, or the you know, so this is this comes down to, this is brands, products, uh, services, you know, music, movies, all of those things. And um, if it's got that right mix of, you know, something a little bit new, uh, but something old, um, to sort of counter anxiety, but uh, introduce understanding. So he call, he calls hit makers architects or familiar surprises right? so then uh, you know we, we used to say back in the day the role of advertising was to make the new seem familiar and the familiar seem new um, and so Thompson's sort of taking his own sort of spin uh, on that but you know that's a that's a key thing to be thinking about um, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of clamor um, from industry commentators to continually innovate and to uh, you know and to break things and to you know, move forward with new things but um, generally anything that's uh, that's too new uh, or too disruptive or too out there might sound like a good idea to a you know, bunch of advertising one percenters but uh, things that catch on with the, uh, with the public um, you know there needs to be that element of uh, familiarity as well. So that's the catchphrase, uh, familiar surprises. And in terms of, uh, you know, so how do you sort of apply that to your own creativity? Well, this is, uh, you know, this is something that, that we included in all of our sort of, you know, pitch decks and everything. When people say, how do you work? And we say, well, we can be more creative and more insightful than other agencies because uh, we are, you know, insatiably interested in stuff, right? Because nothing comes from nothing. So what you can imagine, what you can create, just depends on what size of the data bank in your mind of ideas, of uh, different things that you can make combinations out of. Um, the more connections you can make, the more interested you are in all kinds of stuff not to do with marketing uh, so that's culture behavior just things that you see uh, you know read about stuff that uh, you know that you've never uh, 
never thought of, <clears throat> you know, that your interest isn't naturally drawn to, but all the time you're building up that data set of stuff in your mind that you can recombine. Um, I'm going to give you now the next next book recommendation. Um, so this is I'm not going to explain the entropic two-step, but I think in a, in an age where we uh, you know possibly there are not as many big ideas these days as there has been in the past. I think the entropic two-step is a is a big idea. I won't explain it to you. You can go and find out for that yourself. But this is a terrific book, Until the End of Time, by Brian Greene. Now he's a theoretical physicist. Uh, this is about string theory and quantum mechanics. Um, now, I'm not particularly, uh, well, up until recently, you know, I never did any of this at school. I was never science or maths or anything. But, you know, because, you know, when we, when we go out and say, well, our sort of, uh, you know, our mantra is um, what you can imagine depends on what you know, um, you have to know about you know, all that stuff. And so, you know, this is uh, reading things like, uh, you know, quantum physics. It puts a different bunch of data into your brain that you can that you can make combinations out of. Right? And uh, so anyway, I'm in trouble two step. Go look that up. It's one of the big ideas of the 21st century. Um, I think uh, you know it's a it's a good idea to know um, as you go forward. You know to uh, you know create strategy and creative work. So that's uh, that's one for you. So what I've tried to tried to sort of do there is. Let's talk about how uh, advertising media works uh, within the framework of natural selection. Right, so the natural selection, so it's the principle by which everything on this planet uh, exists. Uh, and it's where each slight variation of a trait, if useful, is preserved. So the formula for natural selection is random mutation and selective retention. Um, so. Uh, you know, natural selection throws up endless uh, possible combinations uh, uh, of things, and then the ones that work, uh, it retains. Uh, and by work, I mean that they to to uh, you know the survival and reproductive uh, fitness of the of the organism. So again, think about. Think about how advertising works. Natural selection is actually quite conservative um, because uh, it does all of its innovation around the, around the, the, the fringes to find those new bits uh, that it that can add, uh, you know, to the to the whole that's already worked. And then, obviously, and things that are redundant from that uh, get dropped out. So, try, you know, looking at campaigns and things, there's uh, really surprised at how uh, you know, uh, brands will say, oh, well, we had to, uh, you know, we felt that campaign was getting a bit tired and it was wearing out, so we decided to throw everything out and do something uh, completely different. Uh, you know, sometimes, you know, there's, again, there's, you can't legislate for random events, but 99 times out of 100, um, you know, the successful brands are built on consistency uh, over time and innovating around the edges right? and then taking you know, those new things that seem to work and bringing it back to the core. So natural selection, you know, describes how you know, all life on this planet 
Uh, so you know, I think it's, it's reasonable that it should explain how uh, you know, cultural uh, evolution uh, happens as well. So <clears throat> talking of cultural evolution, uh, when we talk about biological evolution, it's at the, the level of the, of the gene, right? So uh, obviously genes uh, exist within organisms. Well, organisms exist because genes want to replicate and want to get into the next uh, generation. Uh, and so they're, they're called uh, replicators. <clears throat> so this is, uh, um, is uh, Richard Dawkins book The Selfish Gene 1976, he sort of really brought this into the public uh, consciousness, although genetics had been around uh, for a while, but he sort of popularized it, this idea of, uh, you know, that evolution doesn't happen at the level of the group or at the level even of the individual, it happens at the level of the, of the gene. And by understanding that, organisms are vehicles for, for genes. Right? I won't go into that too much, <clears throat> but you know what genes want, and they don't actually want anything, but if they did want something, what they would want is the organism that they uh, inhabit uh, to survive uh, long enough that it can reproduce so that the, the genes can get into the next generation. Now, everyone sitting here, uh, you know, we are all uh, recombinations of, uh, of two sets of genes, right? So you share. Uh, about you know 50% genes with your mother and your father, right? So you're a unique individual, uh, but just like Elvis Presley, uh, you're unique in as much that you are a combination of existing elements, you know, and you share 25% with um, you know, uh, grandparents, etc. So everyone's a recombination of a uh, uh, set of genes. Apparently, there is there is one little sort of uh, element of DNA which only exists in women. Uh, men don't have it for some reason. But uh, every single woman uh, that's alive today can be traced back through that strand uh, to about six uh, different uh, mothers, um, you know, a uh, million years ago. There you go, but, uh, fun fact. So, genes <clears throat> are replicators. Uh, the other thing that is uh, that are other things that are replicators are our means, right? So this is uh, an example of a typical internet meme, right? But uh, that's only one kind of meme. Now, the the idea of memes again that was Richard Dawkins introduced it in the Selfish Gene, Chapter 11, 1976, where he posited the idea that uh, you know culture evolved in a manner similar. Uh, to biological evolution. So we coined the term memes because it sounded a bit like genes. Um, and I, I thought it'd be interesting just to talk about this in the in the current uh, environment, you know, where we're all dealing with um, with the sort of fallout from this uh, virus. So, <clears throat> you know, obviously that is a biological uh, virus, but I think. Uh, you know, you look at, although the numbers are sort of escalating in terms of uh, the number of people infected, um, whether that's an artifact of more people being tested, of course, uh, uh, who knows. But one thing is for certain that, uh, you know, the only thing that's been more devastating uh, in the spread 
of, uh, of this virus than the biological virus is the mind virus uh, that, that goes along with it. You know? So the, the, the idea of coronavirus and COVID-19 is a, is a devastatingly successful meme because it has basically uh, parasitized and taken over just about every single human mind on the planet. Right? So it's way ahead of the physical virus at the moment in terms of mean fitness uh, versus uh, bio fitness. Right? Yeah, so memes are also replicators. Right? So just like genes who use organisms to go from generation to generation, memes use minds to infect other minds. Right? So things that become popular, uh, like we talked about Thompson's, uh, you know, familiar surprises or memes, the more successful ones inhabit more mind, uh, more minds, right? The brands are memes, of course, as well. Uh, there's no words on here, but you'll you you will automatically identify uh, the brands associated with those logos, you know, because the strength of associations and recognition and the meme fitness uh, of of those ideas brands are essentially ideas uh, then you know those ones are very very strong and so you need remarkably little clue uh, to be able to identify them uh, things like movies you know these are cultural products uh, these are memes as well you know because they are um, the, the most popular ones infect uh, lots of minds when you get something like uh, Avengers, you know, it's beyond just being one meme. It's what you would call a memeplex, because right? uh, there's, there's, you know, there's each individual character is a meme. When you bring them all together, it's a meme. The series is a meme. You've got Captain America's shield. You've got, you know, Wonder Woman's suit, uh, Iron Man's, you know, rocket boots. All of these are, are memes, right? And so Avengers is really, really strong memeplex because of all of those. Uh, associations. Uh, another meme, you know, we talked about Elvis there before. Uh, so, you know, Elvis has transcended just being a sort of performer. Just the idea of Elvis is a, is a really powerful meme. So this is a snapshot from a Japanese Elvis impersonator uh, competition. You know, so this happened all over the world. Um, other, on a slightly more sort of mundane level, you look at other memes that have sort of fitness. So this is one that's replicated itself uh, all around the internet. Um, and I, I, I must have seen 200 different versions of this where, you know, Amazon didn't kill the retail industry. They did it themselves with bad customer service. So, but what this points out is that something, you know, a meme can be extremely fit and can spread and infect thousands and thousands and thousands of minds or computers and everything. But it doesn't necessarily need to have any quality uh, other than an ability to replicate. So this thing that's, uh, you know, that's been replicated thousands of times, when you read that list, you know, the first thing that you realize is it's complete and utter nonsense. And none of those things are true. You know, but they kind of sound a bit you know, profound, but on inspection, there's nothing true about it. Uh, and yet it's, you know, it's spread all over the place. And this explains 
you know, the, um, the ideas of uh, fake news and things like that. You know, truth, you know, people talk about it. We're in a post-truth era. I don't, I don't know if we're, I don't know if it's that bad, but there's definitely a sort of, uh, you know, a peak of misinformation that sounds attractive and impressive. Uh, and, you know, because of how our minds work, we talked about before, the mental modules that draw our attention to things, you know, that are going to impact our survival chances or our reproductive chances do. And so the people who produce this nonsense kind of know that. Um, so I guess, you know, when I, when I said to you, what you can imagine depends on what you know, and I recommend reading quantum physics, I think, it, you know, understanding how your mind works that it's this vehicle for absorbing ideas and acting upon ideas you need to be very very careful about what kind of ideas you put in there um, so meme fitness that's what we call that's the sort of uh, i'm trying to make this i'm trying to make meme fitness have meme fitness by spreading this as a hashtag on, on, on twitter it hasn't been very successful yet but, but we'll see that's a way to describe something, an idea that has uh, that has caught on, right, and that has survived and has replicated and infected uh, lots of minds. <clears throat> Just as an example, so this is uh, something very sort of topical. So this is uh, looking at the volume of uh, news, online news coverage related to coronavirus. Um, you know, since the the middle of last month, and you see there's a steep uh, upward climb there, almost in in line with the sort of you know, spread of the virus, uh, to you know uh, last week where you know more than eighty percent of all online news stories across the major Australian uh, news coverage were about uh, coronavirus in some shape or form, right? And you correspond that with the last you know big major news event, which was the bushfires which even at the height of the uh, bushfires and the smoke, it was only taken up about 29% of, uh, of news coverage, right? So coronavirus is just an extraordinarily fit meme right? because of the, you know, partially because of all of the different associations and components uh, of, of the meme means it occupies uh, upwards of 80% of the news. Now I tried a little experiment on Twitter, so if anyone uses Twitter, you can mute certain words and phrases uh, so that that content doesn't appear in your feed. So I went through it and uh, I just muted every single word or phrase I could think of to do with uh, coronavirus to try and get it out of my Twitter feed so I could just you know read stuff about football and music. Um, but even though I muted you know 25, 30, and there's more than this terms, and yet it still comes through. It's still all that my Twitter feed is about is coronavirus, nothing else, even though I've muted all these terms. You know, that shows you the strength of that as a as a mind virus. You know, it has totally consumed uh, the minds of, uh, you know, of, of just about everyone on the planet. Um, so, you know, I think when we come out the other end of this, I think an interesting, you know, task is to really, uh, you know, 
think, uh, I know it's a sort of cliche, what marketers can learn from the coronavirus, but in this case, we can definitely learn a lot about what makes up, you know, one of these mega memes that, uh, that just totally sort of consumes all of news and all of public discourse, um, because it's a real, it's a case study there. Um, so if nobody else does it, maybe, uh, maybe I'll, I'll do it. I am, um, <clears throat> the, the, the thing about, uh, about memes, of course, so I talked about why the actual quality of the meme itself uh, is not important, right? What's important is that it can replicate. So sometimes, you know, there are things that replicate that infect lots of minds that are detrimental to the minds that they inhabit. But the meme doesn't care because all it cares about is infecting minds right, and replicating itself. It doesn't care about the well-being of the host. And it reminded me of uh, uh, the story of, um, so there's a particular, uh, or some species of ant, particularly in South America. And uh, what happens is <coughs> they, uh, there's a, I can't remember the name of it now, there's a little sort of worm who, uh, that's a parasite uh, and it attaches itself to an ant's back. And when the ant's not looking, it gradually burrows its way uh, in at the back of the ant's head and takes over its brain. And it eventually uh, um, turns the ant into a zombie and it, it drives the ant like a four by four uh, up to the um, tips of uh, blades of grass um, so that uh, a cow or a sheep that comes along eats the grass, eats the ant. Because for the little worm, it's an important part of its reproductive cycle to get eaten by, uh, by a cow. And the most effective way to do that so is to take over an ant, um, you know, turn it into a zombie uh, and drive it up the blade of grass to get eaten. So this is, uh, it sounds a bit dramatic, but this is, you know, I think the certain ideas, this is why you know, understanding how your minds work, it's an information processing machine. Uh, so be very, very careful about what, you, what ideas um, you let in. Um, to uh, you know, inhabit that mind. But the same token, you know, as communicators, you know, we we're also human beings, right? So this is uh, you know, when you look at how the, all of the different sub memes around coronavirus, that's the most successful advertising campaign in the history uh, of the world. You know, because it's got almost a hundred percent reach and a hundred percent penetration. So. Uh, it knows how to uh, how to infect minds, uh, and that's the business we're in. Is uh, is trying to get the you know the, the brand memes, the ideas of you know, brands, products, and services into minds. So if we know how human nature works, we know how the mind works, um, and we can see it all around us uh, as people you know are getting captivated by each new instalment of the coronavirus meme. Um, I think, you know, to take a step back and objectively uh, look at it, um, you know, there's much, uh, there's much to be learned. Um, so just to, you know, finish off that, 
little sort of segment. So Daniel Dennett's, uh, this is another recommendation. Daniel Dennett, who's a philosopher, uh, deals with the philosophy of mind. Uh, this is one, one of his uh, uh, many books, Consciousness uh, Explained. Um, but he sort of concurs with that. He says, human mind is itself an artifact created when memes restructure a human brain in order to make it a better habitat for memes. Right, so that's what minds are for, uh, for processing ideas. Um, but it has a limited capacity. It can only take so much in. So the ideas that seem most attractive, most compelling, perhaps most frightening, um, that appeal to those deep, rooted, uh, you know, uh, human nature you know, designed uh, thousands of years ago for an environment different than this. Uh, th those are the ones that, that catch on. Um, so working with human nature um, rather than battling against it um, you know, is, a, is a good, uh, good strategy. So remember what you can imagine uh, depends on what you know. So be careful what you put in there, but also in, in trying, you know, if you want to be a better communicator, better creative, better strategist, um, then, you know, what you get out, you know, corresponds directly with, with, with what you put in. So uh, consume your media and your, uh, you know, what you read and what you watch, what you pay attention to, uh, consume that carefully. Uh, just a sort of final point um, about, uh, you know, how about mean fitness. Uh, so, you know, sometimes uh, there's, there's a temptation to sort of, uh, you know, give uh, credence to ideas that sound impressive, uh, but are ultimately uh, vacuous. Uh, and you see this all over. I see this all over looking at, at planning decks and things that get written. Um, so the sort of catchphrase for this is uh, pseudo profound bullshit. So it's kind of, it's that stuff that's designed to sound impressive, uh, but doesn't necessarily inform. Um, here's, here's a real example. Uh, so I've, I've seen some variant of this uh, on a number of uh, so-called insights uh, uh, decks. You know, millennials are actively seeking out ways to disconnect from the connected world and then reconnect to their world, right? Which it kind of sounds like something, you know, it sounds profound in some way. Uh, but it's ultimately uh, means nothing. It's just a lot of gobbledygook words that sound uh, sounds profound. So watch out for things like that. Um, I'm going to do a little experiment uh, here. Uh, this would have worked in real life. It's it's not going to work because uh, I can't see anyone. Um, but I uh, I posted uh, posted this on Twitter. This was a, a Twitter poll uh, where I asked people to rate. Uh, whether this phrase and other phrases, but this was just one, uh, were they, was that just some bullshit that I'd made up or were they actual statements taken out of consulting firm uh, PowerPoint decks? So uh, in this one, in the post-digital era, the real challenges will be personalization ecosystems and reimagining. So, you know, people had to vote whether that was just some crap I'd made up or whether it was actually real. Um, here were the final results. Most people thought it was a real consulting firm statement. 34% uh, thought it was random uh, bullshit. Um, it was, in fact, 
uh, a real consulting firm statement. So most people spotted it. Uh, but of course, that doesn't make it any less uh, bullshit. So, finish off with, uh, again, you know, the sort of theme of this has been understanding how the mind works. Uh, thing, you know, what you can create depends on what you put in. Uh, so make sure you put the right stuff in. So I'm obviously talking about, you know, reading the right things, watching the right things, constantly try and build up your data set of new information that you can use to, to recombine other things that can help a creative mind or an inquisitive mind be stimulated. Obviously, this one's a bit tricky at the moment, but, uh, you know, I will say, you know, spend more time outside. Um, I don't know if, you, if anyone knows the great... Uh, 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 psychologists, uh, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, who won the Nobel Prize for Economics uh, with their paper on prospect theory, which is the, basically the fundamental uh, cognitive psychology basis that, that behavioral economics have sort of run with. Uh, they, they did all of their work outside walking. Right? They, they worked out of Israel. Uh, and their office was beside the park. They would spend seven hours a day in the park talking about stuff and then one hour going back to write it all up. Uh, so spend time outside in nature. That's uh, to stimulate ideas. The cult of, uh, of management, I think is something to kind of uh, avoid. You know, we need leaders. That needs uh, you know people that can uh, put together original combinations of new types of thinking which goes without saying biggest uh, uh, mind uh, or set of mind viruses things that parasitize uh, their brains these days is uh, celebrities or influencers the most vacuous kind of nonsense uh, I think uh, less time spent with that is better read more books Right. So read about quantum physics or something, anything else weird. Also read aloud, you know, if, you if you've got children, do that, or nieces, nephews. Uh, it helps to read to children because you have to, because uh, they'll ask you to explain things. And, and so that is, uh, that's all I'm going to... Uh...